Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCpod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by Benjamin Davis, who's the founder and CEO of TryNow. Uh, so ben, Benjamin, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you guys are building at TryNow? Yeah. Hey, hey Blaine. Hey, hey Ramon. Great, great, to have, great to be here. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm the founder and CEO of TryNow, and the genesis for TryNow came out of my work in my last business. I was running a direct-to-consumer apparel brand, and we had this incredibly soft fabric and, and garments, uh, but it's really hard to convey the product quality uh, through a browser window, right? Like one of the one of the challenges in e-commerce. So figured if we can allow shoppers to try the product at home before they had to buy the product, we'd increase conversion rates, we'd increase AOV, we'd increase LTV, and just create a better shopper experience. A fraud, cash flow, working capital, key reconciliation was all just very complex. So Bill try now to automate that for brands. Uh, we've raised about $25 million in funding from, uh, you know, some, some fintech investors uh, to, to create the, the Try Before You Buy category. Sweet. So, um, yeah, why don't you take us a little bit further back to the founding story about, um, you know, how, like, how you had conviction that this is the problem that you want to solve and then, like, kind of what your first steps were. Did you go out and raise capital? Did you bootstrap something in MVP and then use that to raise capital? Like, what was the genesis of the company and what did it look like in the early days? Yeah. Well, so I guess we can go all the way back to a photo shoot, and we had uh, this this fabric for for kids and 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 moms, um, and it was just really soft loungewear. And uh, we had a photo shoot, and I got a bill from a photographer that was for an incredibly high uh, price tag. And I gave him a call. I said, "Just you know, we're we're paying this bill, um, and uh, but just want to have a sense for for for." 
for why it costs so much. They said, well, it's really hard to convey the product quality through a browser window. Um, and so I figured, well, there's got to be a better way. Um, and, uh, and so kind of brought it down to first principles and said, well, why, why is this a problem in the first place? Well, when a shopper has to depart with their hard-earned money um, to experience a product, that's a problem. That's like a fundamental flaw in e-commerce. And when the first trans- e-commerce transaction came around in, I think it was 1994, 1995, um, there was never a chance of allowing shoppers to try before they buy. Right. It would be rampant. There would be rampant fraud. We didn't have the ability to separate an authorization from a capture. We weren't able to track packages, shipping APIs, return management software solutions. Like the plumbing just wasn't laid there. So we've just gotten accustomed to buying before trying. And so that was the thesis that I formed um, that buying before trying restricts growth, flipping the model, unlocks growth. It also creates a lot of complexity. Um, but in order to validate that, I put up two landing pages. I mean, we put ads to both landing pages. One was just a normal kind of add to cart, buy now CTA. The other was a landing page that was a try, try now, try before you buy CTA. And the results were incredibly clear. Um, and you know, we had about a 300% increase uh, in, uh, in, in conversions um, on the try now CTA. And so I had conviction that this just made a lot of sense to drive more orders. I called five brands. Um, four of them said, yes, we'd like to participate in the beta. This is really interesting. And so at that point, I had enough conviction uh, to put in, you know, a lot of my own money, pretty much most of my own money, um, and uh, and go down this path. And what was your background before um, working on that clothing line that you were you were working on? Were you always in apparel and e-commerce, or did you have a different sort of background before that? Yeah, before that, I was in uh, I was in investment banking and private equity um, in both software investing, but also in consumer. So I had a, had a had background in both the consumer space uh, and the software space. Yeah, no, I'm curious on, you know, how a brand looks at, uh, you know, I, I assume the most questions that brands would have whenever they hear about the try now, buy later method, like, you know, are, are some people, you know, not qualified and they're just going to get samples of the product. This is a sample of the product that the brand, that the, you know, customer gets. Is it um, the exact product that they would sell to someone else? Is it a separate inventory for that? How does it all work from the brand's perspective um, to, you know, and, and how is that then implemented? Is that a marketing expense typically for for brands as it get, gets blended into their customer acquisition costs, et cetera. Yeah. So I mean, the, 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 the general concept for, for try now is that um, we just flip the, we flip the order of payment, right? So we call it paycology, right? It's the psychology around payment. It's very unnatural to depart with your money to try a product. And Ramon, let's say, what, what, is there, is there a brand that you like, a brand that you like shopping at? I mean, no, this just reminds you of Warby Parker. Um, but now yeah. I think I'm getting the drift, which is like, if I like it, I keep it with you. But I remember when I did Warby Parker, you have to like still send it back, even if you like it, yeah. because it was sort of a sample ish, um, probably cause you also need prescriptions. So class glasses, might yeah, be prescriptions is a, is a, is, you know, a bit of a different, yeah. bit of a different use case, but regardless, so I'm here. Uh, at our office on Abbott Kinney in Venice and Warby Parker is like five doors down. Um, and so let's say Ramon, you walk into a Warby Parker and you wanted to try on three different glasses, hundred dollars each. I said, Hey Ramon, before you try these on, just give me your credit card. I'll charge you for, uh, for, for $300. But if you don't like it, no worries. You can go to the front, get a refund. You would never do that. Right. And Warby Parker would never charge you to try this on in store. 
so of course, they would never operate their brick and mortar stores that way. They also recognized that they should not operate their online store that way. And they are one of few brands that recognize that very early on. And so we, we flip the model so that your online store mirrors that same sort of behavior of your brick and mortar store. Yeah, I think what's, what's really cool there is you're giving merchants an option and what your job is, is to provide the whole infrastructure. So if a customer wants to be able to try out a product rather than having to part with their money, they can add a bunch of stuff to their cart, they can click try now, and then rather than them having to upfront get charged for what they're buying, you guys are able to facilit facilitate them trying out the product and then if they like everything, great, they can keep it because they've tried it and they liked it. And then they'll settle at that moment. And if they don't, they'll send back what they didn't need and they'll keep what they want. So it is effectively, it is a pretty similar process to what goes on now. It's just like you guys are basically providing that psychological unlock and that in, uh, the infrastructural unlock for customers to be able to tap into that like psychological advantage of purchasing. Are there industries that you guys, I know you mentioned you were in fashion. Are you guys specifically focused in fashion or do you guys go into other verticals as well? And we work across verticals. So we have brands in apparel, handbags, bedding, uh, fragrances, candles, footwear, uh, sunglasses, accessories, uh, you name it. So we work across verticals. You know, our vision is that try before you buy is the new free shipping and easy returns. And in, in the next five years, it's going to be as ubiquitous as free shipping and easy returns. So anything that is discretionary, meaning like anything that anything that is discretionary should be tried before it's bought. Any product that's hard to experience through a browser window should be tried before it's bought. Paper towels, toilet paper, you know, you can buy those before you try. But with the exception of products like that, um, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's universally applicable. Makes, yeah, makes sense. I was going to ask, you know, you mentioned you, you put your own capital, you worked with those five brands. Where do you take it next? What was the next step? Um, you validated it with those five brands. Um, what was your vision for, you know, the next milestone that, that you wanted to take the business to? Yeah, we took a very iterative approach um, towards building the business. And we've done that with everything we do. Um, we take an iterative approach to, um, every component of our business from how kind of we go to market, how we build product. Um, and uh, so I had an MVP, um, it was with my own, my own dollars at that point, um, engaged two engineers um, and we built out an MVP very scrappily, um, right? Just to validate that this would work, uh, that this is buildable. Um, and it wasn't really, the, con the, the, the intention wasn't to build a platform that we would then scale. It was, can we actually charge a card at the right amount? Do we have the tech underlying infrastructure and technology? Because no one's, no, one no one's done it before in a fully automated end-to-end -end way that's truly scalable, right? Without relying on some form of spreadsheets or some sort of manual steps and processes. Um, so we validated that it worked. Um, at that point, we had a very, very lean team. Um, the product got pulled into the marketing incredibly quickly, much more quickly than I anticipated. Um, and with that traction, um, we, we raised uh, additional funding uh, on the back of that. Um, so you know, we raised a small amount of funding um, uh, at that point. I think we raised about a million dollars in funding. Um, we brought on some additional engineers uh, to build up the platform. And we've since raised you know, another uh, 23 or so million in funding. We brought on execs from a firm, from, uh, from Stitch Fix and from uh, Amazon. 
um, uh, to build out the product, to build out the team. Uh, but along the way, it was very much iterative um, with, you know, a relentless focus on driving value for our merchants and for our shoppers. That's that's our North, North Star, the unique part of our business. We have two stakeholders. And ultimately, if we drive, if we drive, if we drive value for merchants and shoppers, you know, that's 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 all that's all we care about. So we kind of just iterate our way towards towards that. The the one question that I had is um, when you're raising for a business like this, like you said, it's part uh, SaaS, it's part fintech. There's a bunch of different components that go into something like this. So are you when you guys are raising the capital? Is that all operational capital? Is it um, you know capital that's used to finance inventory? How do you guys approach the financing component of your business? Yeah. So our our equity capital is solely for. Uh, building the Trinom business. Um, so it's largely payroll and other expenses. Um, for uh, any financing that we do to, to, for, to finance the float, um, so we pay, um, we pay most of our merchants up front to collect all that cash up front, shopper tries for free. Um, that pool of capital is done through outside investors. So it's, you know, so it's, an, it's a separate pool of capital that we pay a fee on. Awesome. And that gets, and that is the essential service that you're providing. You're providing an actual service that a merchant's going to be able to deploy onto their website. You're deploying this service that a customer is going to be able to benefit by trying the product. And you're also providing that service of sourcing the capital and providing it to those merchants to be able to provide that experience without them having to assume the risk on, um, you know, building their own try now program. That's right. And, you know, some th things that are simple uh, tend to be quite complex. And so what we've tried to do is obfuscate away all of these things so that we can just provide the most simple thing to the shopper, which they immediately understand and communicated in one line text underneath the CTA, which is try a home for seven days. Makes sense. I would love to try a home for seven days. Well, underneath the hood, um, there's fraud, there's working capital float, there's tracking the package to make sure it's delivered, um, handling failed deliveries and all the edge cases that come with that uh, integration with returns flow to know what was kept, what was returned. And in e-commerce, you know, 80% of orders go down the happy path, really easy to manage. 20% of orders have an infinite number of variations. Um, and so we kind of manage around that in addition to, you know, the working capital, the fraud, um, uh, anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a really important part of when you're building any business. It's like you said, it sounds really simple when you do it. But then when you actually like think about it and start to peel back the layers, there's all sorts of corner cases you need to be able to solve for and things you need to be able to do. And if you don't solve for all of those different things, well, the merchant's going to be like, oh, well, this just doesn't work. Right. So there's a lot of these different edge cases and a lot of business use cases that you need to solve for before your product becomes fully viable to just be as easy as, oh, try before you buy and it works for everyone. So why don't you talk us through as you were building out the platform, what like how what were some of the big challenges you faced and how you guys built to solve for those corner cases and those use cases to satisfy merchants and customers? Yeah. So, I mean, fraud was it was a challenge. Right. And how do we manage around fraud? And we assume that risk. We're also lending against that. So how do we make sure that we uh, we mitigate that? Um, and so we we have we have solved that. That was like kind of one big chunk. Um, and um, and I think, you know, the, the other piece is really around uh, the complexity of an e-commerce transaction, uh, because when you operate like very quickly, when you're in e-commerce, you operate at scale. 
Um, because for most software companies, they have one merchant. Well, for us, one merchant probably means a million shoppers. Um, and so when we onboard, you know, one sizable merchant with a million shoppers, um, we you expose every possible outcome, right? Now you you take that, multiply it by a hundred customers, and you just have you're just in contact with so many shoppers that are using your tool in a bunch of different ways, exposing every single edge case imaginable. Um, and so when you initially, I mean, you know, not, now we're now we're mature, but prior to that, like in the iterative process, you're con- every single day. Um, you're learning new things. Um, you're squashing new bugs. Um, you're recognizing that what was clear to you when uh, you know you built the product wasn't clear to the end user or wasn't clear to the merchant. Um, and so uh, I think that's like the, the 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 challenging part of e-commerce. Also, like kind of the, the the most kind of beautiful part of e-commerce, which is that shoppers are never satisfied. They are they always want more. And so it's like this asymptote asymptotal relationship where. You can always get closer to a perfect customer experience, but you will never arrive there. Um, and if you're, and that's why, like the greatest force for driving enterprise value is just focusing on the customer, um, customer centricity, uh, like but like a relentless focus on customer centricity. Most companies will say that they care about the customer, but very few actually do that at every single step of of um, of, of their process. Um, and so. And I think like that, that to us was paramount because as we think about our two stakeholders, merchants and shoppers, merchants are, you know, our main, the, the, who we interact with the most, right? Day, day in, day out, we're constantly focused on driving value for merchants. But at the end of the day, like shoppers are uh, the most important part to both of our businesses, right? Without shoppers, we just don't exist. And so we work with merchants on this kind of united front to drive the most incredible shopping experience so that not only do they order more and they keep more, but they also come back more frequently. They love that experience and they generate word of mouth. Um, and so you know, at the end of the day, the focus on, on the shopper and creating an indispensable shopping experience is what, it, what allows their brands to win. Yeah. And that's like one of the things that you're able to unlock for a lot of the commerce brands. Cause like you're saying, the biggest, one of the biggest pieces of friction in the customer journey is getting past that, oh, I'm actually going to spend all this money to buy something that I don't know if it fits. I don't know if the material, like, sure, I can see like, you know, high res pictures of it, but like, there's nothing like when you're shopping and you're in a store and you like feel the quality and you feel it in your hand, you're like, oh, okay, I know what this is. And you can go into the dressing room, you can try it on and be like, oh, that didn't work. I put it back in in e-commerce, you know, that decision-making moves between you being like just that hint of uncertainty, like, eh, like, I don't know if I'm going to get this decision, right? Like that may make you not actually end up purchasing something. Whereas if you're, you're able to remove that risk, now you're able to like, again, reduce that friction from the customer's perspective and provide a solution for the merchant to provide that frictionless checkout um, experience. Right. I think that's spot on. And I like how you talked about risk and uncertainty because they're, they are, two sides of the same coin. And I think all businesses are in the business of de-risking their business, de-risking elements of their business. Um, no matter what stage you're at, like as you grow, you have a new set of risks. And focus, a focus on de-risking um, is, I think, key. It's actually how we manage our annual planning process. We actually just, so it's very opportune. We just came out of last week, our, our exact annual planning process using kind of the risk stack as a, as a framework for us. So 
I think that same thing can be applied to car to, to, to abandoned cars, right? Like what are the reasons? What's the uncertainty? Therefore, what's the risk in that purchase? Well, there's probably a few different risks. I mean, it's not just price, right? It's not just the $0 part. We help solve that significantly, but there's probably other things that are going on in the shopper's minds. But we work with brands, oh, we talk to brands all the time. And one question we'll ask is why are shoppers abandoning cars, right? It's the biggest problem in e-commerce. Um, and shoppers fill their cars, a lot of window browsing, but then they abandon. Why are they abandoning? And, you know, there's like conjecture, like, oh, I think it's the wrong size, or I think, you know, the, the price is, price of the product is, you know, it's, it's an expensive t-shirt. Well, the product uh, meet, 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 the, meet the promise, right? There's all these different kind of hypotheses, but very rarely do brands actually reach out to those shoppers, interview those shoppers, ask them questions and, and understand what's going on behind their mind, in their heads, right? And so like there's, there's always, a, I think there's, there's this tendency to focus on averages, right? Data and averages. Um, but uh, anecdotes, I think, are more important than data. And so like internally at Try Now, we talk about finding the anecdotes first, surfacing the anecdotes first, and then, you know, diving into the data. Um, and I think it helps short circuit some things and also gives you the color and the context um, to, to form hypotheses. I think the same applies to your customer side of the business too, where, you know, you're asking to interrupt the experience that their customers might have when they interact with them. Um, you know, checkout, it's, it's, it needs to be a flawless experience for, for the customer. Uh, but I love that you provide an additional improvable value um, besides just a better checkout experience, which is, you know, sort of what like Bolt or Fast or these other checkout companies have, like you are literally just enhancing the experience of the customer um, while going into the, you know, um, having them sort of replace their checkout experience. So how were you able to earn that trust early with those customers who might have a million customers? And here you are as a potential seed stage, seed stage startup asking, hey, can you let us, you know, try this and, and trust us with this? Yeah, I, mean, I think in the, in the early days, um, trust was hard. Right now, it's it's very different. Um, but you know, we've been we've been beating the try before you buy drum for about three and a half years, um, and so the market has formed. But it just took just took time and patience and incredible amount of hard hard work. Um, in the early days, I think they didn't need to trust us; they needed to trust their product. And I, I'd say the same is still true today. We work with confident brands. If you are confident in your product, you've got to be using. Try before you buy. Um, if you're not confident in your product, you definitely should not be using try before you buy. And I often say we accelerate the growth of a business selling a great product, and we accelerate the demise of a business selling a bad product. And I think that's a great place to be in. Like we want the, the best products to rise to the top. And so if you have a great product, get your product into more homes. And if uh, and if you have if you have a great product, they're going to keep it, um, and they're gonna you're gonna acquire you know happy shoppers. And I assume for subscriptions, um, it's a huge value for for brands to be able to just offer this to let subscriptions for free trials um, that they previously probably would have more objections um, from people just signing straight up for a subscription initially. They probably just do a one-time purchase. And then maybe if you were lucky to get them, then they roll into the subscription. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um the next question that I, or the one point that you pointed out that I do think is really important is about the idea of 
you need the brand needs to have a good product to be able to work with you guys, right? It's kind of like that double-edged sword because if you and so like I guess my question there is do you guys have a process by which you vet merchants? Because um, you know, if you like you're saying is if a merchant onboards with you guys, they don't have a good product, they're early stage, they haven't reached their product market fit, call it, uh, and then they just start scaling this up, you're gonna have like this exponential effect on returns on um you know people being upset with the product all this sort of stuff do so do you have a way in which you vet merchants or do you kind of let that just sort itself out knowing that you know the best merchants with the best products will rise to the top and the others will be able to make that decision for themselves yeah yeah that's a great question um not yet and we don't have a need to yet uh, because it's self-selecting and um, brands that reach out to us or, or we reach out to them um, are brands that either we admire or they admire their own product. Um, and so uh, we know that if we can get that product into more homes, um, they're, they're going to drive growth. Um, so, so we don't, we don't yet. Um, and it's because of the brands that we work with are, have a lot of confidence in, in what they're, in what they're selling. What are some of the, like the best examples of like that you've seen, like brands that maybe you've worked with that you can mention on the show or just product categories in general that like have seen the most success with this sort of thing, right? Like obviously um, there's going to be certain subcategories that like totally outperform others. So are there any that have like really stood out to you um, so far through your three and a half years building Trino? Yeah. Well, um, any brand in apparel needs to be using Trino before you buy, frankly. Um, like, of course I sound completely biased in that, but like when we've seen the data time and time again, it's just, we convert living rooms into fitting rooms and that is key for selling apparel online. Um, and so, you know, some of these businesses will have higher return rates because people are already doing some of this behavior. Um, but ultimately, like size, fit, style, you just, you need the ability to experience that in your own home um, to, to really, otherwise you're leaving money on the table. Now, there are other product categories that we work with, like handbags, um, that, you know, the question around durability, quality, look, style, size is oftentimes hard to understand. Um, so that's, you know, another great category for us. Um, I'd say like categories that don't work would be, you know, AOVs that are like 30, 40, $50, um, become tough. Um, and then items that can't be resold after returns, um, are, are also, uh, we, we don't work with any brands, uh, uh, in, in that space. Um, but you know, even companies like fragrances or, you know, I'm here with, I've got a, I got a sniff candle here. Um, on my desk and um, sniff sells candles and they sell uh, you know cologne perfume as well um, and they send samples with the full-size product so if you like the sample you just keep the full-size product in your charge but if you don't like the sample no worries just send it back and you won't be charged um, so even in those categories uh, that rely on sampling we kind of turn sampling from a two-step process to a one-step process where the shopper typically has a two-step process where they like the sample, step one. Uh, they then have to go back to the website and purchase, step two. Well, there's huge amounts of drop-off between liking that sample and going back to repurchase. And so we eliminate that second step. 
uh, so that, you know, if they like it, they just keep it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point in terms of there, there's so many layers to trying things out. You've got the traditional like product samples that you can weave into these sort of flows as well as the, oh, I want to put a bunch of these products, actual products in my cart and try those out. Are there any um, use cases on, I know we talked about higher AOV products. Are there, is there anything in regards to like for characteristics about products like product size and weight, like can you guys serve furniture? Does that become harder? Are there any like, you know, bit super big or super small things that don't, that work well or don't work so well? Yeah. Um, so we don't work with any furniture or mattress companies today, although we will be working with some of them uh, soon. Um, and uh, it, it's not that it doesn't work in those spaces. Um, uh, in, you know, for, for mattresses, for instance, um, it just will work in slightly different ways. Um, and so um, you get a full site wide rollout to 100% of traffic uh, for a mattress company it might work. Um, it also might be more challenged. Um, so how do you do it in more uh, targeted ways? So cart abandonment, retargeting, specific paid campaigns, SMS campaigns that uh, web visitors that come through those channels have the ability to try. And so you're targeting that at different points of the funnel. So maybe it's a mid, mid funnel or a bottom funnel strategy, um, as opposed to just anyone that landed on the site can try. Right. And so you can you can you can lev you, you can leverage try now and, and, and the tool. Um, to augment whatever your existing strategy is. Got it. Um, and Benjamin, the next thing I wanted to kind of touch on, and I know we were chatting a little bit of, about this offline and we had definitely covered the whole idea of like how important being customer centric is, is how do you think about and how for brands do you think about navigating customer centricity in a time of like potential, you know, economic recession where companies are thinking about where they can save costs, cut corners, lay off staff, like these sort of things. Like how do you put the customer first and what's your philosophy uh, for that in the ep upcoming economic environment? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great topic um, because there's a tension point between th there oftentimes it appears that there's a tension point between what's best for the shopper and what's best best for the merchant. And before I kind of go into that, I will caveat this with saying like the number one thing that's best for the shopper, if you sell a great product, the thing that's best for the shopper is to always stay in business, right? So capital efficiency is key. So like that's like the filter for all of this. So the, the business needs to stay in business. You need to have a, have a healthy business, healthy margins, and able to, to support, you know, to support the business, to continue to deliver on products that your shoppers love. Let's assume that you have that health. Um, in that case, um, there is no, there is no separation between what's best for the shopper and what's best for the merchant in the long run, in the very long run. Um, and, you know, we can kind of debate that topic, um, but ultimately customer centricity is how you win. Um, and there is a natural inclination when markets soften, which they are, demand is softening, brands, brands are feeling it. Um, to uh, find ways to cut costs. And I think there's a numerous, numerous different ways to do, to, to do it. But I think one, one way that is very easy for, for shoppers, for merchants to do is to charge, for instance, a, a restocking fee. Um, so you return that item, we're going to charge you $10. Um, and uh, brands will, will do that and they'll A-B test it and they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't impact conversion rates. We threw ten dollars to net impact conversion rates, so it's you know effectively generating an extra ten dollars 
times the return rate. So let's say you have a 20% return rate, 20% times that $10 restocking fee, generating an extra $2 per order, um, which is you know, helpful for their margins. Now, what that doesn't take into account is the impact on LTV. It doesn't take into account CSAT and NPS. It doesn't take into account rep repurchase frequency. It doesn't take into account the dampening effect that that has on word of mouth. Um, so there's a, you know, a, a, there, I've seen a few kind of articles about brands that are thinking about introducing restocking fees. And I think it's probably one of the most short-sighted decisions a brand can make in this time. Because if you take that example of $10 restocking fee times a 20% return rate, that's $2 per order. Well, there's a lot of other ways that you can generate an extra $2 per order um, without creating a, a bad customer experience. So you can raise your prices by a dollar per order. You can find creative ways to bring down your cap by $2 per transaction. There's a, you can renegotiate terms with your shippers. You can renegotiate, renegotiate terms with your suppliers. Um, you can renegotiate terms with your working capital lenders. There's plenty of other ways to, to uncover those dollars that doesn't create a bad customer experience. It's just that those other ways are more challenging. Um, and uh, and so you know, I think that's like a kind of an interesting kind of debate that we'll we'll have, and I'm happy to always have this debate. And if Blaine Ramon, you have you have a different perspective, I'd I'd love to hear it. But I think it's a it's a fun topic to to riff. Yeah, on. I mean, I the the reason I love thinking about things in this lens is like you're starting with the customer and you're working backwards, right? So like, yes, the brand can recover margin by you know adding three dollars or a five dollar restocking fee or whatever it is. But I think to your point, until like the data is very unclear about how the, how that decision impacts all these different parts of the business, right? Like when they're running their analytics, if they're using, you know, they're, they're running their, your different BI tools, like, and the way you're querying it, that query becomes so complex and hard to solve. And also you need time for, to be able to prove it out. But like in the short term, it's really easy to say, oh, we recovered this margin. But in the long term, it's really hard to, to say because if someone doesn't return something, they're like, I'm not gonna pay another $5 to return and restock it. The product obviously doesn't fit them. It's sitting on the shelf. So you've got waste in that regard. And then they're gonna be like, why would I shop from that online store again if I was just burned on this shopping transaction where I spent a bunch of money and now I'm call it, you know, 80 bucks in the hole, I don't want to spend another 10 bucks to like ship this back and restock it with them or whatever. So I'm just going to leave it. And like, I've actually seen this, right? Like I've seen products around my house where I just don't have the time or energy to be like, oh, I'm going to go return that for that like 40 or $50 refund. So it just sits there being wasted and ultimately becomes a bad customer experience. And my first reaction isn't like, oh, nice. Let me go buy online from this brand again. Cause I just got burned. Right. That's exactly right. And you have like when when you have a return the 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 concept of restocking fee makes the assumption that a return means that that shopper's never going to come back again. Kind of just wrote that shopper off. That's a, that is completely false. If you look at the data of shoppers that return, a big portion of them come back and repurchase as long as they have a good product. If they came and like they just thought the product quality was was didn't meet their bar, it's a different story. But let's assume that you have a great product. Then maybe they didn't find the right size, maybe they didn't find the right style, maybe the color that was navy blue was actually a light blue and they don't like light blue, right? There's like a bunch of different reasons. But if we look at the data around what we call buy zeros, right? Shoppers that ordered and returned everything, a big portion of them do come back 
and repurchase from that brand, but they don't if you charge them a restocking fee. Well, yeah, and, because um, no, in, the, in that example, imagine you've never bought something with a brand before. You are literally, I mean, in the try now sense, you as the shopper are paying to try out their product. And you're going to be like, wait a minute, I just, I just got hosed for $20 and I don't have anything to even show for it. And not only that, it took my time. And I sit, I stand, I stood in line at the post office for 30 minutes to get this thing returned. Also, I could pay this brand $20, like totally shit experience. Exactly. And you know, that, that you talked about, uh, like, uh, you talked about looking at the data and saying, well, you know, what's the LTV impact? And the reality, it takes time for that LTV impact to really play out. You know, you, to really have a lot of conviction there, you need a solid six months, but probably a little bit more um, to, to have full conviction. Um, and that's why internally at Try Now, we talk about anecdotes first, averages second. Because if, you, if you're focused on finding the anecdotes around how, did restocking, how are restocking fees resonating with your shoppers, you would then talk to your customer support team. And I guarantee you that if you have, uh, if you have a restocking fee, um, you're getting inquiries from shoppers complaining about that restocking fee. And brands will um, basically grease the squeakiest wheel. And so if a shopper's complaining, they'll, they'll waive the restocking fee. Well, that's just not the right way to do business. And it's also not fair to all of your shoppers. Um, and so if you, like, before even looking at the data, you just heard the anecdotes and you just read the emails into customer support, you would know that this isn't customer centric. And you would know that this is not going to help your business in, in the long run. I mean, that's why, like, you know, we talk about anecdotes first, averages second, I think is particularly relevant here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the other thing to, to touch on there is, like, how important it is to actually just understand what, like, the service is that you're providing as, like, a merchant to these customers, what the end experience is, and then working backwards from there. And I think um, it's really easy to, like you were saying, jump into saying, let's charge restock and freeze. Let's recoup our margin there. And my one takeaway so far from this podcast and a lot of the other ones that we've been having as well is like, if you're a merchant, if you're an operator in e-commerce, like you have to be super thoughtful about not only like the product that it is you're making. So you start with good quality, but then every different part of the business, you want to be auditing your supply chain, your sourcing, making sure you're being able to pick up margin there. Um, you know, all the different costs associated that all the different costs that go into your unit economics of your service. Like you need to consider all of that and then use a tool like try now to be able to like leverage that turn on the gas and, and scale up. Right. Um, so I think I, if I anything, it's, yeah, go for it. That, which you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of the success probably depends too on like the brand having a good product, right? Like if they have a good product, most of these issues, Go away. I'm curious. Do you? How do you define a good product? Um, at try now. Do you guys look at certain data benchmarks? Do you guys help the customer understand? You know whether they're in a position to do something like this. Whether what are the KPIs or benchmarks they need to improve to know that they're headed towards the right direction for this service to be um, of more benefit to them i assume it, it's not subjective that you know benjamin decides benjamin needs to try it first and decide if it's a good product or not and try all the products <laughs> yeah um, i yeah i think the best that the, the 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 number one stat most correlated to you know what's called product quality 
um, would be, um, and it's not, product quality might be a little too precise. I think we'd call it product market fit, frankly, is, that, is the brand selling a product that fits with the market they're selling it into. And that would be success rate. So it's um, percent, the percent of orders in which shopper ordered something and they kept something. So if a shopper ordered two items, kept one, returned one, that would be a successful order. Um, if they ordered two and they returned two, that would be an unsuccessful order. And so forget about return rates, right? Because if a shopper ordered four items, they keep two, they return two, they just kept two items. That's a big AOV. That's a big AOV. But a brand would look at that one order and they say 50% return rate. That's bad. It's not bad. It's great, right? So like we, we kind of bifurcate return rate. I think it's like, I think it's an unnuanced metric. Instead, we focus on success rates and we focus on net AOV. Um, and so uh, success rate is, uh, is, is, is the... Uh, is, is, is a great metric for that. And I think a good example would be uh, Good Life. I don't know if either of you are familiar with Good Life Apparel. They're an exceptional uh, exceptional business, um, an exceptional product. Um, for a long time, their, uh, their product was uh, premium high-end teas. Um, and uh, it was the vast majority of their business. They've since launched new, cat new categories and they've used Try, Try Now to get shoppers to not just convert on teas, but then expand. Um, into some of their more fashion pieces. Um, but if you look at their success rate, it is top decile, um, uh, top probably 5% of all of our programs just because the product is so incredible. And I highly encourage you to, to get a tea. It is, it'll be money well spent and you'll look fantastic in it. Um, but um, it's just really good product. Um, and, uh, and that's like, if we go back to anecdotes first, average is second, I got the t-shirt. And I said, well, this is, this is, and I'm like a bit of a t-shirt connoisseur and Blaine and Ramon, I see you're both wearing t-shirts. So uh, maybe you are as well. And I knew that when they launched their program, it's going to work because it's just a great product. Um, and you see it in the data. Another thing that I think is going to be really exciting for you guys. I don't know if you've built this stuff out yet, but it seems like, like every time someone's ordering, there's a lesson to be learned, especially if they're using try now, right? Like there's, if there's something coming back, it's like, oh, okay. You know, you're almost running this like mini AB test between the two products that that customer ordered. And then teams can like use those insights to seeing what's coming back. How are we structuring our communication about these products? Why are people selecting these different bundles? So I think what's really exciting about it is not only are you providing a good customer experience as you're able to provide more, um, you know, bandwidth for these brands to like get their products in the hands of more excited customers, but you're also providing like learning lessons every single time that a customer is taking an action, whether like you're saying they're keeping the product, it's a fully, fully successful try now, or they're returning one of the products, keeping one, which is also successful. You can pull something out or if it's an unsuccessful, okay, what are the nuggets and what can we learn from that? Is there something we can iterate into our website, the way we frame the sizing, the way we did the description, all that kind of stuff. That's, that is a great point. And it's something that we, we haven't done yet. Um, we've done like a little bit here and there, we, we do some surveys, but we haven't fully productized that, but, but we will because, um, like turning kind of a, a bad thing into an opportunity, right? So like a return that where some shopper didn't order to keep anything. Well, how do you turn that into an opportunity? You do that by understanding why they return. And I think a good example of this, when we talked about kind of product market fit, it's like you, you could sell a great product, but maybe it's great for just some, some people. So let's take apparel. Uh, maybe it's great if you're, you know, six foot or taller and it's just a great t-shirt. But maybe if you're five foot seven, like myself, 
Um, maybe it's just too long. And so maybe the product's exceptional. It's just the grading for the sizes, for the size, for the size small or size medium, are just a, a, a little off compared to you know the large or the extra large. Right. So it's not necessarily always product quality. It could be grading. It could be a bunch of different topics. Um, so uh, that's that's some data and some um, information we'd love to surface back to our, our merchants. Awesome. And then, Benjamin, as we kind of come up on time here, what are some of the like, clearly you guys have a really exciting roadmap. You know, you guys will be able to provide all this data and create leverage out of that as well for the brands. But in in the more immediate term, like. What are, what are you guys focused on as we look at um, the closeout of 2022 and moving into 2023? Like, what are the core areas that you guys are focused in right now? Yeah, so we're building, uh, we continue to build deeper and deeper into Shopify. Um, and so uh, continuing to build build upon our partnership with Shopify is, is key. Um, so we're native within the checkout, um, but continue to build into other capabilities that Shopify offers. Um, and other integrations within the Shopify ecosystem to make um, to make the product as seamless as possible for the shopper and for the constituents of the merchants and stakeholders of the merchants that use our product. Um, the other piece would be building out a shopper portal that allows the shopper to have full transparency and visibility into their trial. Uh, right now, we've been heavily into kind of communications, but ultimately having a place that they can self-serve questions about their trial they can extend a trial if they're out on vacation themselves which, without reaching out to customer support. They can initiate the return of their trial within uh, this portal. Um, so we're building that out and that will launch next year. Awesome. And for anyone who's listening, um, merchant, operator, whomever that might want to get in touch or reach out, where's the best place to connect with you and try now? Are you guys on are you on linkedin twitter um you know what's the best place to find you where can they try try now they can try try now It'd be hypocritical if they couldn't um so uh they could try us before they buy us and um and uh follow us on linkedin we've got a we, we post quite a bit around content around the e-commerce industry uh, more broadly and, and and try now and try before you buy more specifically um and then you know go to our website at trynow.io for more information. I mean, if you want to reach out directly to me, feel feel free to, to drop me a note. It's Ben at trynow.io. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on DTC Pod with us. Loved hearing about what you guys are building. I think the space is really exciting. There's all these different use cases that are opening up and we're really excited to see you guys as you continue to grow and, um, you know, see how you can take on this whole this whole e-commerce market and, and help help get some more products in the hands of shoppers. Yeah, thanks guys. Really fun conversation. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.